Hey there, and welcome to the Best Picture Marathon of the Oscars Death Race podcast, where we try to watch all the Best Picture winning films, or die trying. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Hope you and hope you and your loved ones are staying cool in this extreme summer weather, especially if you're in the UK. Um, in any case, I want to welcome you to this new project of the Oscars Death Race podcast, the Best Picture Marathon. Now, in case you missed the last episode where I gave the announcement about this, just a quick recap. Um, while during award season, you know, from December through March or so, the so is you know weekly and you see frantically trying to watch fifty some odd nominees for the Oscars each year. The past couple of years, you know, when it's not Oscar season, I've just basically not been doing anything, right? Um, however, I do want to fill a gap in my film knowledge, um, and part of that is going back to watch all the Best Picture winners. Now, I know these aren't the be-all, end-all of what the actual good films in history are, but they are, I still think, imp- significant in at least understanding the history of film uh, and trends of what were popular and what were considered good films at the time. Now, what I'm doing, planning on doing with this series is, you know, once a month or so, uh, give or take some break months, you know, recovering from the, the Oscar death race and so on. Um, you know, once a month or so, I'm going to be watching two movies that have won Best Picture that have some sort of common theme in them, right? Instead of going strictly chronologically, which many people I've talked to have kind of burned out around the 40s or so doing that, um, I'll try to jump around and try to find things that are similar, um, which hopefully makes for an interesting compare and contrast to show the time difference between the two. Um, I'm trying to have a friend or a guest on each episode to bounce off though. Um, bounce off of, though nothing is yet set with this project, but if you're interested in coming on, definitely drop me a line. I'd be more than happy to have talk to more people about movies. Uh, if my calculations are correct, uh, it's going to take me about seven to eight years at this pace uh, to watch them all, so we definitely have some time, and that's definitely why this is called a marathon. Now, while I'm not planning on doing these films chronologically, I still did kind of want to start uh, with the first film ever to win Best Picture, uh, the winner of the 1929 First Academy Awards, Wings. Now, when deciding what to pair it with, you know, one interesting fact that came up is that Wings is only one of two so-called silent films to ever win Best Picture. Uh, Starting with the second Academy Awards, you know, the majority of Hollywood's output were talkies, right? Um, It wouldn't be until 2011 when the French film The Artist itself an homage to the silent era of films, um, that we have another, again, so-called silent film, and you'll understand why in this episode I say so-called silent film, but another so-called silent film would win Best Picture. So for the first lap of this Best Picture marathon, we're going to be talking about 1929's Wings and 2011's The Artist as the two silent film Best Picture winners. Uh, Joining me on this episode is my college friend Prim, who not only enjoys uh, enjoys watching the Oscars, she is also a bit of a musical composition nerd, uh, which comes in handy actually when talking about the scores that accompany these so-called silent films and uh, how score actually impacts and how watching these films is, uh, you know, crucially impacted our, our appreciation for score. And we'll also talk a little bit about earlier Hollywood history to provide some context for these films, as well as how 2022's biggest movie, Top Gun Maverick, is pretty much a direct descendant of both of these films for different reasons, and will probably win Best Picture, Picture next, Oscar, next Oscars by this logic. I'm only half kidding here. Um, anyway, uh, also one last warning, we will be going into spoiler ter- territory for both of those films, so if you want to watch these, those films before that, Pause this episode, go and watch those, and come back. I'll be waiting right here in your podcast feed for you. All right, without further ado, let's get on to talking about our Sound Film Best Picture winners.
All right, and joining me today on the Oscars Death Race Best Picture Marathon for the very first episode uh, is my dear friend from college, Prim. Uh, Prim, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us where you're from, uh, and how do you describe yourself, especially in relation to movies? Thanks, Paolo. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Prim, currently residing in Jacksonville, Florida. And in terms of my relationship with movies, uh, I'm not a movie aficionado, a movie buff or anything. When I usually watch films, it's for face value, not for any reason of analyzing things or uh, finding the deeper meaning behind themes employed in these films. But occasionally, I like watching these films for the mere fact of their music scores uh, or employing music as a way of carrying a story along through film. So it seems like you're definitely a, a music fan. I also know, like, you know, obviously we're friends on Instagram, and I know, like, you always tend to comment whenever I make a, a story about, you know, like, movies or talking about my Oscars death race. So, like, I mean, I, mean, I know you've also, like, you also make a big deal out of, like, every year, like, following the Oscars and making predictions and so on, right? I tried... Um especially around 2016, 2017. I was really diligent about watching as many best picture contenders as I could. But ever since the pandemic, it's sort of dwindled down. And especially with the rise of these streaming services, it's been really hard to catch up on all these different films. But I, I know you also, and part of the reason I wanted you to come on for this first episode is that you're one of the few people I know who've actually tried to watch every Best Picture winner. And I, I know, you know, before we we started recording, you said you hadn't quite finished it. Um, I think you got up to like 40, 40 of them or something. What what led you to want to try to watch everything? To be honest, I'm not quite sure what made me want to watch these Best Picture films. But I will say, I remember watching La La Land, and I was so captivated by uh, Pasek and Paul's um, orchestration of the film that it did, um, I guess, uh, pique my interest in how music was um, utilized to create stories to um, bring some of these characters to life and so I guess that's when I started looking into you know cinema history through the lens of music and uh, revisit some of these films that won best picture so I started off with wings originally I thought I would work backwards start with like moonlight and then work my way to Wings, but I thought it'd be much more eye-opening to start with the best picture winner of 1929, I guess I should say, Wings. That's super interesting, especially because this episode we're going to be talking about sound films where, you know, the only sound really at the time was was the musical score. Um, before we get to those, though, one last question. Um, what, are you, what are your favorite movies? Or, or, and I guess also a secondary question. What are your favorite uh, film scores as it relates to, to how they impact the movie? Perhaps one of my favorite uh, symphonists or composers would be Bernard Herrmann whom we'll probably talk about, especially with 
um, how he influenced Ludwig Borst for the artist. He's a prolific American composer, well known for his works on Alfred Hitchcock's movies, specifically um, Vertigo. Citizen Kane is also another notable work of his. Uh, so probably him. Okay, okay, for sure. That's that's super interesting. So, you know, again, like I mentioned, you know, the films we're talking about for this episode, we are going to be starting off with uh, 1929's The First Academy Best Picture winner, Wings. Um, and, you know, the way I'm doing this series is that I am pairing together two films that have something in common with each other that won Best Picture, not necessarily chronologically in order, which uh, talking to people who've tried the Best Picture Marathon, those who try to go like in chronological order tend to like burn out at some point just because of like the dated one dated film after a dated film. So I'm trying to mix it up by having a dated film and maybe a more modern film together. So um, Wings coming out Wings coming out uh, in you know coming out in 1927 to 1928 uh, for a long time was the only silent film to actually win Best Picture because uh, 19 uh, from the second Academy uh, Awards onward, it was all talkies, right? It was all films uh, with with synchronized sound, um, you know, and and it wouldn't be until 2011's uh, The Artist, which is you know 99.9% silent um, and about the silent era, um, would would a would a film win uh, Best Picture that was you know basically a silent film. Um, so that's what this theme is. You know, we'll go, we'll start off the this, this series with the first film that ever win the best picture and you know kind of an homage to that a film uh, about that era that it came from um so ready to hop in Prim? sure whenever you are so first up we have wings uh which is the as we mentioned the 1929 uh best picture winner for the first academy awards the awards ceremony was held in may 1929 honoring films from august 1927 through july 1928 so not quite the same calendar we have today um and the winners had been announced three months prior um so you know this is kind of rad because you know obviously this is the oscars death race podcast so um nowadays we have like 24 categories with a whole bunch of categories with like five nominees each aside from best picture uh which have currently around 10 um at the time they only had 12 categories um and this this was kind of like me geeking out about like how the, the oscars have changed over the years so you know the the two the film's best outstanding picture uh best unique and artistic picture best directing which is split between comedy and drama a best actor award a best actress award best writing for both original and adaptation best art direction best cinematography best engineering effects uh and best writing which because all of these and by us by writing they mean title writing because uh again these were all sound films so they had like the the placards in between scenes with words on them and they gave an academy award for that um instead of you know f- uh five nominees per category they had three nominees three or maybe four nominees per category and in many cases uh actors or individuals were nominated for for just a general body of work for that year instead of one specific film, which I found super interesting as well. There were the two other Best Picture nominees for Best Outstanding Picture, which, of course, Wings won, uh, was The Racket, directed by Lewis Milestone, and Seventh Heaven, directed by Frank Borzage, which was actually nominated for five of these categories and won three of them more than Wings. Um, uh, Wings actually won uh, both, of course, Best Outstanding Picture and then Best Engineering, which I guess would be an early precursor to uh, visual effects. So that wasn't really regularly done for, for a while, but it went two for two, which is pretty solid. Um, you know, 
uh, now nowadays best picture is actually kind of considered the precursor to uh best picture but there was a, but the other category best unique and artistic picture which i did my research went to a film called sunrise which was another you know silent black and white film and you know from what i've read about it on wikipedia you know that's why i do my research um it sounds like it's it's that that sounds like the more melodrama that you'd probably expect like that's oscar Beatty nowadays right like like you you've seen recent films right from that, that it has to have like a cathartic element i would say yeah, and it's very much like a melodrama, so maybe like the ugliness of the human condition or so on to some degree, right? What's it? Sunrise was nominated. Like it, it got three, it won three of its four nominations, so even won more than, than Wings did. It won Best Cinematography and Best Actress as well. Um, but, you know, uh, Unique and Artistic would be uh, discontinued that next year. It, it's kind of funny that, that they went up going with Best uh, Outstanding Picture and discontinued Unique and Artistic, um, which I'm kind of curious, like, how how would movie history or the Oscars have changed if instead they had kept uh, unique and artistic as a separate category, perhaps, or even like replaced instead of outstanding picture, they went with best unique and artistic as the general uh, best picture film and, and kind of like what precedent that would have set? I think we would have a completely different lexicon of films if we went the unique and artistic route. I Cinema in itself is already subjective, right? But to have a unique and artistic category set the precedent for best picture would be very interesting to see. I don't think any of the recent films would even fit in that category. Well, I would I would say Paras- Parasite maybe I, Parasite and maybe Nomadland I mm. think are like more on the unique maybe artistic Parasite. side because one thing like I I it's kind of interesting because you remember a couple of years ago they had they had that whole kerfuffle about oh we're going to introduce a best popular film category oh right? they did um, you're right yeah and, I, and this is almost. I feel like this is almost like a precursor for that, where like Wings arguably could be seen as like the more popular film as opposed to the more auteur type film for uh, for for Sunrise, right? And you know, I, I and doing the research, right? Like I, I found that like you know part of the reason the Oscars got started, right? The Academy had this award in the first place was that you know this was like what the, the late 1920s. It was like the the end of prohibition. There was a te- the temperance move, the temperance movement, and you know. There was a number of scandals, which I won't go list out here, about you know, you know, like you know, drug overdoses and potential murders and whatever within Hollywood. And so this was like the Academy's way of trying to promote that oh, Hollywood is actually great. We have great people putting out great things. Um, and having like this film about a guy who wants to murder his wife versus this you know, patriotic love story that is uh, that is that is wings, I think is a better fit for, for that. So that's kind of interesting. I think like you know, the, the Oscars in themselves, like the history of the Oscars is kind of um, roots back to this decision to have Wings be best picture, kind of kind of that whole idea that, oh, like the Oscars is kind of, to some degree kind of like self-promotion of the, of the industry, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Although I would probably say more so than the romantic element of Wings, it's really a quote-unquote man's film that invokes on the whole idea of brotherhood faced with problems that comes with war and how that is being tested 
I guess I mean if we're gonna hop straight into the film, and you know, I'll you know, obviously, like I mentioned in the introduction, this is kind of like a bit of a uh, uh, there's gonna be spoilers here. So you know, if you haven't seen Wings, uh, you know, this is a conversation meant for if you've had if you have seen it, you can talk about it a little bit more freely. I, I agree with you that it's like a man's film, right? Because like you know, again, to the whole point of it being like a popular populist film, um, this was produced by Paramount, and you know, they had apparently had re- rewritten the script in order to include uh, Clara Bow. Um, who, yeah, she's the, the literal it girl. Yeah, she was coming off of her, she was coming off of a recent film that was literally titled It. Yeah, so, so like, you know, they rewrote it for her, and, but she wasn't entirely happy with the film, and to some degree, I could kind of see why, right? Like, like, see, her parts felt very tacked on, and not, like, not super, I mean, it's obviously part of the script, and they rewrote it around her, but it was definitely like, oh, let's, it's very kind of transparent if you know it, and like, oh, they definitely wrote, they wrote, definitely wrote this film in this way, so that they could sew her off without having her really meaningfully add to the script, which kind of like was a whole separate story to some degree. I totally agree. It seemed like an afterthought to have the romantic element, um, especially when they were using Clara Bow's character, Mary, um, towards the beginning and then towards the end. Maybe parts in the middle while she's the ambulance driver, but otherwise it was centered around two men, uh, their relationship from enemies to basically good friends distraught by the war brothers exactly yeah but yeah yeah and it and to me from like maybe a business standpoint it did make sense because you had two unknown actors and it was such a big film for its time that in a sense it did make sense to have someone well-known or popular at the time to be featured. But again, I understand where, or I think I would understand where Clara's coming from by saying that she was more so like tacked on. Her character was just simply an afterthought in the grand scheme of the story writing process. Yeah, so, you know, aside from her character, which, you know, obviously I think we both kind of agree that, you know, kind of whatever her role, even though, you know, again, respect to her for everything she's done in the industry, this film didn't, like, didn't quite sew her off that well. She was best known for the sound films. Um, what did you think of, like, the rest of the film with regard to, like, you know, the whole A, a storyline, so to speak? For the lack of dialogue, as someone who doesn't really watch a lot of silent films, I thought that it was easy to digest. I could understand the storyline. It was pretty straightforward. Though some parts were dragging, I thought that the storyline was pretty good. I wouldn't say it's like, I wouldn't say that it's mind-boggling or life-changing per se, but if I were to imagine myself in 1927, 1928, with World War I kind of a memory in my mind, I would say that it did hearken to, you know, the patriotism of the time and it would tug at my heartstrings, I would say. Yeah, it wasn't like a particularly deep story, right? Like like I, I think like the whole thematic of like, oh, war is terrible and it'll kill like it didn't really do that until like literally the last like ten minutes or so, right? Like when, when, when he ends up when when the main character ends up dying, for the honestly, for like the majority of the film, it's almost like glorifying like how amazing it is to be these pilots flying in the skies and shooting down enemies, right? So I didn't really do a great job in that regard, but um, yeah, I mean, it, I think, and, and to the point about like you know, it felt like it dragged a little bit. Yeah, it's like two and a half. It's two, two and a half hours, hours with long. like a ten minute intermission. 
Yeah, which I, I guess was the norm of the time. But like, you know, it was it definitely I think obviously part of that is there are a lot more interstitials in between, which I found interesting because like I'm used to like reading on screen because I watch a lot of like foreign anime or K dramas or whatever. Um, and so I'm used to reading text on screen to understand, you know, something that's I don't understand auditorially. But it's interesting to have it like kind of come after the dialogue and it's like kind of it makes it, it one, it pads out the film, makes it a little bit longer, but then two, like they didn't translate everything in the screenplay, right? Like, they, they were very select about, like, which lines of dialogue they did. And you got a lot of a better... Se- you, you had to kind of, like, rely on the context of, like, what are they saying that I can't understand? Like, unless you're really good at lip reading, you're going to have to kind of get, get the impression of what they're saying more so than the actual literal things they're saying. Right. And if I'm being honest, in comparison to the next film that we'll be talking about later on... I thought they had a great use of the interstitials because, you know, you had the free reign of just interpreting based on their facial expressions what they're trying to say or what the theme of that particular scene was. And whereas the other film, well, we'll, I guess we'll discuss about that too, it seemed a little sparse and so I had to kind of piece together the the storyline. However, I think with this film, Wings... I thought for where they placed those uh, those bodies of texts were just right and not too overwhelming to detract, to detract from the the storyline itself. So you know, I kind of like I don't know if this is just like a norm of actors at the time when they knew that like you know they're not gonna translate everything I say. Um, so I wonder if like that's just the norm of the way they're acting because it definitely felt like they exaggerated like the facial expressions were a little bit more exaggerated than you would expect from like you know like nowadays Oscars are about like the subtle face movements or whatever, right? Well, here it's like they kind of. I don't, I don't want to call it overacting, but they definitely exaggerated. Almost like they're in th- a theater and they have to express extra loudly and gesticulate much louder for the audience to get what they're saying, right? Maybe because there wasn't sound included in the film, yes, they had to be a little more emphatic with their emotions. But I also think a lot of these actors and actresses at the time had a stage background already so maybe it was ingrained in their methodology of acting that they had to be more expressive right that's a, that's an interesting point that that that's part of for sure um speaking of like i guess you know people's kind of backgrounds going into this one interesting thing that i found was that the director um who was uh, william a wellum was actually picked for this role because explicitly of his uh, history as a combat pilot during World War One, actually, um, which I think really shows, right? Because like, if any, if nothing else, um, you know, this film definitely was a spectacle. From it, it definitely deserved not only its best picture. Well, I'll, 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 well, I'll leave aside the best picture, but for the engineering award, it definitely was like, if you can imagine at the time, right? Like, Flag had only been around for twenty five years ever at that point and the fact that they're able to pull off like these like i was reading about the production like it, it those dog they fighting like, scenes incredible the, i will say yeah like they had like th- they had like 3500 infantry troops uh for the final climactic scene and 300 pilots um and and yeah i mean they actually had one of the pilots um charles rogers who plays i think jack it was um who ends up uh he didn't wasn't the pilot before and they actually gave him pilot training in order to be able to film in the air with them basically um the other actor richard arlen was already a pilot actually from i think serving in canada during the war um so yeah it definitely was a case where like 
you know, it kind of reminds me of a modern film now, actually, from this year, Top Gun Maverick. Have you seen that one yet? Oh, I have plans to watch it. But I was just thinking about Top Gun and how in the trailer you see all these aerial shots. Yeah, it feels like the Top Gun of its day, basically, right? Where, like, this, like, now, like, Tom Cruise is, like, famously now, you know, like, for Top Gun Maverick, he had not only himself, but all the other actors do training to be able to ride in an F-14, basically, um, or F-18, uh, and like and fly with the actual military to, to get the shots that need, they needed. And here, they actually got the U.S. Uh, Air Corps to actually contribute to the film, right? Um, and, you know, it definitely extended production, right? Like, normally, films of this time were shot in about, like, a month or so. This one took nine months to suit, basically, and was, you know, very expensive for the time, which I guess makes sense why they would want Claire Bow to come in to, you know, make sure that it was financially... Uh, secure um, but yeah I mean it was definitely I think from a technical perspective considering the time it would some of those those dock, like those slide shots would stand up to the day basically and you know a lot of those shots were dependent on weather too just imagining the technical feat and just the logistics of mounting like a camera onto a plane making sure that it doesn't fall off during those dog fighting scenes and then saying like oh if the weather's not good or if the shot was too blurry oh maybe this uh this plane was not like in the right area at this specific time it, it takes a lot of logistical planning to just even choreograph how these planes would show up on film and uh that probably like also contributed to why it was such a lengthy process. And there's, there's obviously there's the interpretation of best picture, like we were talking about earlier, of like it's a unique and artistic film, right? And you know this may not be that, but I I would probably imagine if we went with the interpretation that best picture is just like the film that had just like all the production value behind it, right? And, and not not just like the set design production, but just like all the logistic productions and like getting everything together. I could see why this one would be considered best picture from that definition, right? Um, yeah, so I guess like, a couple more things about Wings, unless you had anything else uh, specifically to, to mention. No, I'm just really impressed from an editing standpoint how all of this came to be. I mean, I'm not aware of any of the technology used for films during the silent era, but especially during the Café de Paris uh, scene. I was going to call that up. They were zooming, they were zooming in, right? Mm-hmm. On, on, they on used the a dolly, table. I think, right? Yeah, so that was actually something I was going to bring up. A couple of a couple other kind of things that stood out. So that's kind of like a semi-famous shot of like this dolly zoom shot where like they choreographed pe- the people moving out of the way of the of the camera, and they would later on to be you know obviously imitated by other films later on. Um, that was that one just shows up on Reddit all the time of like these amazing like you know sequences. Um, that one definitely stood out to me. You know, apparently it's one of the first films to actually show nudity um, on the big screen. Um, in the scene where like the guy who ends up has the flag tattooed on his arm. And he's signing the papers or whatever. Um, in the background, you can see some guys like getting phys- their physical examination before joining the army uh, from behind. Um, and then uh, at the end, when they die, this is one of the early male male kisses on on the big screen, actually, which is I found kind of interesting. Actually, um, fun fact, Paolo. I don't know if you noticed, but maybe if you look closely at the cafe scene, there's actually uh, a female to female pairing there 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely more progressive, I think, than, than maybe you might think thought for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then and then the last thing is that you know there's this scene with Gary Cooper who infamously got into an affair with with Clara Bow on set. You know they're on set for nine months, right? Um, but Gary Cooper uh, in his small scene uh, is actually part of a, one of not the first, but the very early uh, instance of product placement in films when he offers them the Hershey's chocolate bar and right. he like specifically zoom that. in on the on the on the paper. So that was also another another interesting fun fact for this film. But yeah, and I guess like the last bit of obviously right like so fun fact about this film it was actually considered a lost film for a very long time um they thought they had lost all the copies in the fire until 1992 um when they found a print in uh the cinema thick francais archive in paris so then they restored the film and then um so obviously this was a sound film at the time but it wasn't without music when you would have seen it in theaters right uh, at the time, it was the norm for someone to actually play an instrument, play maybe a, maybe a piano, or if it was a, a larger fil- uh, theater, like an orchestra would play with it um, in live time in sync with the music, basically. Um, and so they reorchestrated the score based off the score that they had, um, like the, the the seat music, and then added that and then added in sound effects uh, provided by Skywalker Sound, actually. Um, so I think that's like a you know again to your expertise with music. Like, what did you think of the score? Um, I'm assuming you you watched like the re- the remastered version that has this reorchestrated score what did you think of that it's actually interesting that you bring up uh the music score because watching the remastered version i sometimes question if it's really nowadays a silent film or more so a film without any speaking parts like a non-talking film And why I say that is, like you mentioned before, with silent films, you know, they would film the movie, they would go into production, do some of the editing or splicing, and then they would have, uh, at the theater itself, their own orchestra, own conductor, a piano of some sort to accompany the song um, as it was playing for the audiences. And with the remastering of Wings, I kind of felt a little taken aback by the film because of all of the included sound effects in the in in the film that were not there if it was really when it was released in the 1920s at the time because with uh, silent films a huge genre that is significant within the silent era is the idea of photoplay music I don't know if you're aware of it. No, tell, tell, tell me more. Yeah, so photoplay music, it's a really popular genre utilized by American composers in silent films. And there's three, um, three different sub-genres, I would say. There's the improvised. You'll see that a lot with like jazz musicians. Um, and that's pretty much, you know, you see a film and then based on what the composer or whoever the instrumentalist is, they will just play what they see is fit for the film as it's showing. So it's not a, it's not a set score for that. So one, there's no like set score. The... Yeah. And okay, that, okay. so that's one side of the spectrum. On the opposite side, the other end, you have what we know today as your original compositions, your film scores, right? Every, every character either has a theme or... Uh, Uh, a composer is specifically commissioned to write or compose an orchestration for a film. And then you have the hybrid of the two, 
which is the compiled uh, photo play genre. And the compiled photo play genre is what was used uh, in Wings, the original version. So unfortunately, uh, the composer of Wings was not credited at the time of its original release. So the person uh, I'm referring to is J.S. I want to pronounce his name as Zamchnik. I am not sure. But uh, J.S. Zamchnik wrote the original score, and uh, he utilized the subgenre of the compiled photo play music. And so this is where they'll have a mix of original compositions. So with Wings, you have the notable theme of da na 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 right at the beginning of the title card. And that's very typical for silent movies to have a opening theme and then you'll have some like recognizable samples of like popular and classical music because one it was because the executives didn't have time and they wanted to release this music or this film as soon as possible and two it was just easier for the composers to just print out basically popular music uh, include them in their original composition and then send it out to the theaters and probably instrumentalists would, would already know how to play those popular exactly. songs. So they wouldn't need to learn something new. Right. Okay. And especially when, you know, time and money is of the essence for these films with their return on investment, it would be uh, it would be a loss for them if they had to take time for these instrumentalists to learn the music and then delay, you know, the release of the film because of that. So Zamschnik, I think, had some strings in the original film score a couple of the war scenes uh were were original i want to say the end if i'm not mistaken i think the ending where it's um david as well as jack um you know in that small french village um you know saying their goodbyes and obviously david dies spoiler alert that um, has a sample of popular music so it's it's nice because then for the viewer at least there's something familiar for the instrumentalist who is accompanying this film it's something familiar that's easy to produce it's easy to perform um, but uh, with the restoration of this film uh, it's completely different um, and I, I was taken aback because when when you were approaching me with the idea of, oh, we're going to be watching silent films, I was like, okay, uh, it'll probably be two and a half hours of just pure silence and then maybe a mix of like themed songs in between to kind of move the story along. But then the, the Blu-ray version of this song, it was inundated with so many sound effects that it kind of took me back from... Uh, recognizing is this really a silent film preserved or is it as I mentioned earlier like a non-talking film um, so with the the restored or the blu-ray version um, I think it was because it was the 85th I want to say 85th year anniversary of Wings Dominic Hauser and Frederick Hodges, they were the ones who were responsible for um, reorchestrating the music that you hear in the remastered version are improvisations. It's, it's interesting to see how like, or to hear from like a music background, how 
it's so hard to explain Paolo because it's kind of distracting almost. <laughs> Think about it. When you if you watch a silent film, you know, you're trying to imagine everything that can happen unless you are in an actual theater, right? And you have these Foley actors who are doing the... Right, which I don't think they would have Foley actors. Which right? I don't but, think, right? I mean, I, th- I think this is a case where it's just... This is a, this is a case with older films in general, right? Where, like, films that were previously lost, like, we're probably not going to see them as they were originally intended, right? I'm sure, like, Gone with the Wind, which I know I'm going to have to watch at some point for this, <laughs> I'm not really going to have the same experience of watching it, like, in a theater with an intermission. In the, I, I guess I could make my own intermission if I wanted to. Um, but, I mean, like, it's, it's not going to... Especially for a sound film, it's not going to be exactly the same. So, I don't know. I think it's interesting. Like, the, that whole, you know, that whole lesson on, on the different kinds of, of instrumentation for sound films, super, super... Like, I, I learned a lot there, so thank you for that. Um, but, yeah, I think it's it's... I mean, it's just definitely a case where the way we have to access these these older films is just kind of, like, not going to be the same, but, like, from what we can't... As best as they can reproduce what was there, even if they added in some things that maybe weren't with the sound effects. Um, what did you think of, like, the score in general, right? Just your thoughts as a music person. For the score in general, I thought that it was appropriate for what it intended to do, which is if there were any new characters being introduced, there would be a theme for them. Um, the the slight uh, sample of the wings theme that I kind of sang for this, it's like woven into the story. There there are times well, though that um, I will say that this music helped propel the story, especially with those extensive dogfighting scenes, because there were times where it was dragging and I, 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 I was like, oh, I can't watch this anymore because how many times are you going to see the same airman like shoot at like a camera or the same uh, planes like doing all of these crazy eights in the air? There's only so much you can do. So it's at that point, listening to the music helped propel that story forward. Yeah, so I, I said... I guess it's very interesting then, like, even if this is, like, quote-unquote, a silent film, like you said, it's not, it's really more like a non-talking film as opposed to truly a silent film, right? Even if, even if, even if what we listen to isn't what actually was what we heard before. The modern comparison I have for that is if you go to an, uh, like, a Pops concert that a local orchestra has, like, if you have Boston Pops or New York Symphony Pops and they have, like, a, a, Star Wars night, for example, and they just have the film and then they just play the score. That's the closest I can compare it to for an actual, like, me quote unquote silent film experience. Yeah, I've, I've never been to one of those, but I think, I think maybe I should. You should. Do that now you should. This. In any case, uh, before we get to the next film, I want to do a quick uh, go into my research that I did real quickly on the state of Hollywood, I guess, at this time, 1927, because one, it'll, I think, give us a little context on where Hollywood was when the Academy Awards started, um, but also it's the setting for uh, the artist, which we'll talk about next, um, I think gives some context for, for the themes of that film as well that I found. So, you know, obviously, movies started back, like, the idea of motion picture being captured on film started in the 1890s. Um, 
Thomas Edison made the Vitaphone, um, which is essentially a, a, the first projector. Um, and actually, and then uh, community theaters actually started as early as 1897, um, with the oldest uh, continually running theater in the U.S. today um, being the State Theater in Washington, Iowa. Um, and then in Pittsburgh in 1905, the Nickelodeon, right, um, named after being able to pay a nickel to, to watch a, a series of short films, um, came out. Um, and again, these were all silent and, as we noted, you know, accompanied by an instrumentalist. Um, eventually, you know, around 1915 or so, films, uh, these short Nickelodeon films were replaced uh, by feature-length films, um, most notably uh, the uh, pretty racist uh, but, uh, but historically significant uh, Birth of a Nation, um, and uh, that in 1915, which was you know multiple reels of film, um, and so that you know kind of put the death of the Nickelodeon uh, as you know they needed to upgrade their chairs and whatnot, which is too expensive um, to you know accommodate these longer films people would be watching. Um, and you know movie theaters also started building their own movie theater or movie studios started building their own movie theaters um, as a result until you know later legislation would make them divest of those. Um, so then, you know, movie making was actually originally based around the Fort Lee, New Jersey area. Uh, before actually, you know, but actually, you know, obviously near New York, so in the winters was pretty cold. They actually started, um, they moved down to where you are now, where I'm from. Actually, I'm originally also from Jacksonville, Florida, which became known as the winter movie capital of the world. Um, and this was around 1908 or so. So, you know, the first Technicolor film, The Gulf Betweens, was shot uh, in Jacksonville in 1917. And there were a lot of different films shot around this time period. Um, but eventually, Jacksonville having a somewhat more conservative uh, residents uh, and the mayor uh, John W. Martin uh, ended up cracking down on the film industry which uh, was one of the reasons that they ended up moving to Hollywood uh, around around you know 1917 or so um, and you know, there was also people moving to SoCal to escape uh, let's say Thomas Edison's somewhat more litigious practices uh, regarding <laughs> patents and technology and all that um, so you know this was 1917 which is you know around when World War One was happening um, and so so obviously Wings wasn't around yet, but World War One obviously devastated Europe, and a lot of the creative people from Europe, you know, the film industries of France and Italy and Germany, which were at the top at the time because you know cinema started in France, uh, in Europe, um, they ended up moving to the U.S. Um, and in addition, as the Nazi Party, you know, in Germany started to gain more power, you know, in in the in the subsequent decades, um, more German uh, directors moved over to the U.S. as well, um, which kind of led to Hollywood becoming the center of of, of all that. So, you know, from 1915 through 1927 was, um, you know, the silent era, right? Um, with, you know, stars like Clara Bow and so on. And, um, you know, Wings comes at the very tail end of that in 1927 when the jazz singer by Warner Brothers actually came out, which is the first talkie film. And actually at the first Academy Awards, uh, Warner Brothers received a special recognition Oscar for the jazz singer about, you know, the technolo technological and uh uh, advancement they had made with that basically. So um, by 1929, basically almost all films were talkies. Um, the next, you know, 1930s Oscars would be all talkies. Um, and then especially with the Great Depression hitting in 1929, um, you know, kind of the rest is history with, you know, movies becoming one of the main forms of entertainment. Uh, and during the Great Depression, which led to the rise of the movie system, the, the movie studio system and the star system, um, you know, separate from the sound era. So that's kind of like where we are at the beginning of the artist, uh, which is the next one we're going to talk about. So, um, any thoughts on the history of film and how that kind of impacts your thoughts on, like, uh, I guess, wings or, or the artist? I still can't believe that there were films 
uh, that were created right around Jacksonville, Florida, given the climate. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, I, I guess at the time, right? If it was during the winter, you'd want to be in a warmer place to suit during the winter months, just to make more mm. films, right? Maybe, but I would have just moved out west. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> So in any case, uh, we'll move to the next film, which is The Artist um, from 2011. Um, it won Best Picture at the 84th Oscars, hosted in May in February 2012 to honor the films of 2011. Um, so, you know, in uh, the 81st Oscars, they had actually had only had five nominees um, after some... Outcry, I believe that Wally, I don't think, I think did not get nominated, even though people thought it should have. Um, they ended up uh, uh, in in eighty for the eighty second and eighty third Oscars, expanded the number of nominees for Best Picture to a set ten nominees. Um, before um, with eighty three with the eighty fourth Oscars, this one they went back to a variable number between uh, five and ten, basically. So this year there were uh, nine nominees for Best Picture: um, The Descendants, Extremely Loud, and Incredibly Close, uh, The Help. Hugo, Midnight in Paris, Moneyball, The Tree of Life, and War Horse. Um, have you seen any of these films, Prim, or no? No, actually. <laughs> yeah, me neither, actually. I think I mean, I've heard of Moneyball and I've heard of uh, The Help for sure. Um, but actually, the one, so, so The Artist actually was uh, one of the most winning films of the night, uh, getting five of the ten nominations it received. The other film to do this was actually Hugo, um, which interestingly enough was also a film set in France uh, about the silent film era. Uh, this one was directed by Martin Scorsese, had 11 nominations and won five of them. Um, but most of the ones that Hugo won were actually in the in the technical categories for sound mixing and production design and visual effects, actually. So, um, which is kind of interesting because I think if not for Hugo, I would I would I don't know, I would I wonder how much uh, how much if Hugo had been present, how how likely the artist would have been to win one of the sound categories. But yeah, and, and a little bit more context at the time. Um, I, 2011 is about the time when Netflix was actually starting to break out as a streaming service. Um, they had about 21 million subscribers at this time after having been a, a, a DVD service for a long time. So um, the artist, you know, again, is a uh, France. It's from France. It's a French comedy drama from 2011, directed by. And um, apologies for, for the name and pronunciations, if there are any. Uh, Mikkel Hazanavisus, uh, and produced by uh, Thomas Langman. It stars uh, Jean Dordagin, who later appeared in Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street, uh, and Ber- uh, Berenice Bejo, who had previously appeared in the 2001 film A Knight's Tale, opposite Heath Ledger. Um, it's about the relationship between a rising actress of the new talkie films uh, and an older uh, sound film actor um, as in the in this transition between uh, sound films and talking films. Um, interestingly enough, Michelle, uh, um, uh, the, uh, the the director and the two leads had actually worked together previously on a f- series of French. Uh, spy film parodies or parody films called OSS uh, 117 um, where he was a director same director same acting team basically so um, I think after his financial success he got uh, the director got the green light to work on this kind of more ambitious artistic film after his more uh, comedic type films from, from before 
So The Artist is definitely you know, one of the most awarded films in history from France. Uh, it won, again, five of the ten Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Costume, Best Score, uh, and it was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, Best Original Screenplay, Art Direction, Cinematography, and Film Editing. Um, it won the best, the equivalent of the Best Film category Award at the BAFTAs, uh, the Cesar Awards, which are basically France's Golden Globes, the Independent Spirit Awards, which is one of the few cases where an Independent Spirit Award film also won Best Picture, um, won Critics' Choice Award, the Golden Globes for Comedy, and the Produ Producers Guild Award for Best Picture. Uh, it's also the first French film to win Best Picture ever, the first French actor to win Best Actor. Um, he also won Best Actor at Cannes, which debuted. Um, and it's also, again, the only other sound film since Wings to win, be to win uh, Best Picture. Um, it's the first film to be sought in four the 4-3 ratio to win Best Picture since 1953, and the first black-and-white film to win since Sindler's List back in 1993. Um, okay, that's a lot of stats about the artist. What did you think overall about the film? Like, what 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 would you what would you overall uh, describe the film? How how did you like it compared to other films? I thought that it was artistically stylized version of A Star Is Born. Mm, yeah, it, 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 if I had to describe it, it would be almost like like have you, did you see Mank in the recent years? I know I did watch Mank. Although not entirely, it's a long film. It's a long uh, film. It, it, reminds, <laughs> it reminds me of it reminds me of Mank in that it's very much like a homage and tribute to the specific time period in old Hollywood, like the studio system and all that. Um, kind of mixed though with kind of the the levity almost of La La Land. I think would be a good mix between the two. Um, does that make sense? And how, I, how those two come together to make uh, the, the the artist? Yeah, I think. The artist is definitely paying an homage to the silent era of film. I mean, Michel, I think his name is, Michel has a navicious, vicious, I'm so sorry, I'm just going to call him Michel. I think Michel, uh, for some time, if I'm not mistaken, was really inspired by these silent films, and it was actually a dream of his to create a silent film, if I'm not mistaken, from what I have read from his interviews. Um, so it's definitely like a love letter to that, uh, what, what I guess some people would say is like a forgotten, um, aspect of like cinematography. I don't think a lot of people nowadays would sit through an hour and a half, two hours of a silent, not to mention black and white film. Uh, yeah. I mean, to this one, this one is only like about ninety minutes or so, like uh, like a little bit more, um, which actually definitely like it was actually a lot better paced than Wings was for sure. I think, um, and, and interesting, you you mentioned it's like an, a tribute to like the old sound films. A couple of things from my notes that I found: one, apparently this was filmed at twenty two frames per second, as opposed to the current standard of twenty four frames per second, which. Part of the reason for that is that old silent films used to be filmed at a variable film rate between 16 and 24, um, but played at 24 frames per second. Um, and the reason they could get away with that is because um, you know there was no sound they needed to sync to, basically, right? Um, they had a live accompanist who would accompany it at whatever rate they needed to, you know, up tempo, down tempo as they needed to, and so that's why older sound films have like this really um, exaggerated, like they're moving really, really fast feel to it. Is because the the film is at a different film rate, so it's interesting that they actually filmed this one at twenty two frames per second as a result of that, basically. Um, 
Another another thing is they actually filmed in color, but they post production changed it to black and white. But then um, there's this scene where she's in his dressing room and she uh, puts slips her arm into his jacket and like holds herself or whatever. Apparently, that's a reference to I mentioned this film earlier, Seventh Heaven. That was another contender for uh, the the first Academy Awards, and that that won multiple of them. Uh, so that is uh, so that's a, that's a reference there. Um, but yeah, I think the thing that the the, the scene here, like if if in in Wings, it was like the plane flight sequences. I think the se- sequence here that most uh, stood out to me was that dream sequence where like it was completely silent, and but then you started to hear the Foley sound effects. That was probably the one that stood out to me the most. Yeah, that was a that was a scene that was memorable for me uh, for the artist, especially coming from like a sound editing. Uh, standpoint and I, I guess the movie or the music nerd in me is gonna come out again Paul. <laughs> so um with this specific sequence um especially when it is regards with in regards to film uh we mentioned in wings right how there would be cue sheets and that would be accompanying the film as it was playing in theaters right there would just be the the reels themselves with no sound included obviously and then the it was up to the conductor and the orchestra to accompany it while it's being aired right but here um for this specific uh scene um i thought that it was so interesting how they utilized a uh, uh diegetic have you ever heard diegetic sounds yeah before? yeah di- diegetic sound yeah yeah because yeah, yeah. in films nowadays it's non-diegetic right where you have uh, orchestrations that would accompany the film. And then... Like they're not hearing it themselves. Yeah, yeah. It would just be post-production. You would add on the uh, the film score. But here with Diaget, they... they it, it was so nifty how they did it too because here he is, he's a silent uh, film actor who can't even hear his own voice yet you hear all of these objects like the the drop of like a a brush or um the fall of a chair and you hear that and i thought that was it was a jarring contrast especially if you're listening if you're just watching this silent film and you hear these everyday random objects making noise i thought it was pretty cool yeah, that was pretty jarring to suddenly go from like there was score in the scene before to like no score and just like only foley effects, which was like I think again top notch for me here. Um, and yeah, there was this scene, the scene later on where like he talks to the police officer, and like I th- I wasn't sure like I couldn't just just not understand the police officer what he was like lip syncing. They didn't provide an inner title like what the police officer was saying. But reading it online, I read people said the interpretations that, oh, he's realizing that sound is so important and he's an old silent actor and then like, what's his place in the world in the world of sound, right? Um, and you know, there was I think another clever thing I think I liked about this one was how you know, they didn't obviously didn't have like actual dialogue that you could hear, but the inner titles that they did choose to use, like there's this one where he's with his wife and then, you know, they're, they're arguing and he's like, he's like, why don't you talk? Right. Um, and that's, I don't know, maybe this is like very basic level screenplay writing stuff. Um, but I just was very tickled by like, oh, that's just like a double level of like, why don't you talk in films when he's very being stubborn about wanting to do a silent film versus why don't you talk to me in your relationship, right? Um, so that was, that was another one um, there as well. And yeah, I don't know. I think, um, you know, I, I love the thing I appreciate was the clever use of like text in the backgrounds. Um, 
like there's the scene where like he's walking out of the oxen when he's selling all of his stuff and then it says uh, a lonely hero like on the on the movie movie placard above him there's another one where like um the uh peppy mill miller um has like the guardian angel in in some text above her that's like in like again almost like diagenically but like within the world basically like it's telling you what what the screenplay without actually having a screenplay to hear right um i don't know i feel like not having dialogue to listen to makes it so that you have to pay more attention to all the other elements of filmmaking that much more Exactly. I totally agree. And I think that's why the use of the inner titles were so sparse as opposed to wings so that, where there was so much going on and it was a, just a very linear storyline as compared to the artist. I think there were just a lot more smaller stories woven into, yes, the rise and fall of this very famous silent film actor and the emergence of this budding talky actress right yeah yeah and i think like it's you know it's it's obviously there's a stereotype that hollywoods love movies about hollywood they're actually looking back in recent years aside aside from almost la la land um it's actually in the recent years there haven't been too many films that have actually won best picture about about hollywood but i think this one kind of contributes to that idea that hollywood loves films about hollywood which is i guess to some degree true um and obviously man got nominated for a bunch of stuff and so on so um but yeah, and then uh, let's see another parallel I I came up to here. Just again to bring back to Tom Cruise and and and, and Maverick. I mean, um, obviously you haven't seen it yet, but for listeners out there who have, and this isn't spoiling too much, I see like part of Tom Top Gun Maverick. Part of the analogy is like it's about yes, Tom Cruise as Maverick. Um, you know. Get, like not giving up the old ways of, of flying fighter pilot jets in the age when drones are coming, but that's like an analog for like being a movie star and like being a movie star in an era when everything around movies right is changing right like again this was coming out right when netflix was taking off right um when streaming was taking off this is about a film when an actor from one era of film how does he make a transition to the next era of film right um i think that's like a, a cool uh parallel between the two um so yeah did you have any thoughts on the score specifically i know you said you had some some notes on that yeah i'm trying to like collect my thoughts because <laughs> Ludwig Burs is a, he's for me one of those composers that I either enjoy his works or I don't. Thankfully with the artist, uh, I I do uh, enjoy his original score for this film. Um, but what, what just took me aback is the use of the uh, sample songs that were not present at the time because this film is supposedly during what 1929 1932 right the artist yeah 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 however they used samples of uh of popular music in this film from from the 40s from the 50s um for example there was one song it was the only song that was sung uh pennies from heaven um, yeah, that was the, that was that 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 definitely like was a little jarring when I heard that. Definitely took me aback because I said, uh, first of all, there's someone singing. Second of all, but I think it was towards the latter thirties when this came out. So it definitely was not part of 
the music at, for that time period of the time period it was not a contemporary of that time so it kind of like took me out of the story for a bit uh and then i don't know if you realized paolo in the film where george valatan is in his apartment he's about to pull the trigger there's this sample of an Alfred Hitchcock films uh, a score. I th- it's from Vertigo, and it's and it's and it's Bernard Herrmann's like his uh, one of his famous um, pieces of work, and I-, I thought it was just a really interesting addition to the film. I was gonna say, I guess like kind of like Wings, where like the remastered version isn't authentic, like maybe what they had at the time. Here, this is like again a reimagining of 1920s, 1930s Hollywood, but kind of with the knowledge and everything that comes with being made in 2011, right? Um, so it's kind of like looking back, but in the retrospective way, where you know, like a movie, it's not maybe authentic, like 100% authentic, but it still gives that impression for whatever suits best for the film, right? Yeah. Though I I will give kudos to uh, Ludwig Bors uh, for that use of uh, Bernard Herrmann's, um, I think it's called Saint d'Amour. I think that's the name of the specific piece, Saint d'Amour. Uh, because if, if, if you watch Vertigo, the scene that it's being used, there's a part where the main actor there he is at the top of the lighthouse with the main female character and there's it's just two minutes of just silence and them communicating with just their eyes and then this part kind of comes up the sendale more theme and it's at the point where something drastic happens to one of the characters i'll just say that and it kind of it's a it's a that parallels it's kind, what's yeah, going it's a, on here kind of a parallel to uh where this specific uh theme is inserted in the artist that i thought was a nice touch anything else about the about the artist before we wrap up? I, I know we've been going a little bit long <laughs> you know for for what it's worth um and i'm sure that there are people who are staunch uh, believers that this is not a silent film and those that are appreciative that it is paying homage to silent Like the film. last minute or so, like they, they do break the silence, which I guess is like thematically appropriate because it's about him actually giving up his pride and moving on to the next era of films, right? It's, an ad- it's a nice touch because, you know, within the story, it's the transition from the phasing out of like... Uh, silent films to talking and it's and it's a parallel the character development right of George Valentin right it was necessary to close the film it was effective and it was yeah it, it was, was very effective um and it I think it did its job yeah for sure you know who else did their job last note on on the artist uh the the butler Clinton and the dog Jack played by the dog Uggie um, those two were the best part the best parts of the entire film so we don't deserve dogs i know um okay so to close up the episode i guess how 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 do you think watching these films like what if you were to go back and watch other films like how does how do these films uh, change your thoughts or appreciation for both dialogue in films by virtue of this not having any and also of score um to i guess supplement to, to to supplement or not even supplement but to be part of the larger film i guess in general that's a loaded question, Paolo, because um, 
What? Well, I wanna. I'm curious. What are your thoughts about it? It definitely made me appreciate how score can be so important to a film, right? Like, I think if Wings had not had a score behind it, I probably would have fallen asleep trying to watch it, right? So the score definitely kept me going through it. And I think the score also does a lot to add character to the film, to add, to give the emotional cues, even when you're not realizing and thinking about it. Um, at the same time, it also made me appreciate films that have really tight writing and really tight dialogue, right? Like, um, like uh, wings for you know its its technical achievements. I think the dialogue was you know the screenplay was probably whatever for me. Um, though for the artist, the way they used the screenplay to like tell a story with what little words or even like what lip reading and and subtitles they did give to like you know cleverly give double meaning to these words. Um, I think that was like a really good screenplay, and I think it makes me appreciate when good films have great screenplays. I think. Right. Or the fact that if they do have a great film score, that can only enhance the story. Right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, th- I, think, I think we're on the same page there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I echo all of those sentiments. I think now that I am looking back at how I watched these two films, it's only made me realize how important it is to kind of marry the two. Um, because, I don't know, you can only do so much with the dialogue if your actors and actresses aren't that great in, you know, expressing the words on the page. And you also need, like, the physical performance to go with the screen, to go with the act. Yeah. It's, sure. it's an audio-visual thing. Audio-visual exactly. It's, a be- it's better to have both than, 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 than one or the other. Um, okay. Um, last two questions uh based off of what you know of other films from these eras um do these seem best picture quality to you uh well for wings the only silent film that i have watched was on chien andalou uh by salvador dali and that was a very avant-garde eccentric film only 16 minutes long <laughs> but uh for the technical prowess the feat that it did for those various uh fight scenes um just the production uh, of production yeah the production level of the time uh i thought that it definitely deserved a best picture nomination and the award um and i can i think i still think in in some regard that it can be a winner or a contender for a art unique and artistic picture just by the way that it was technologically developed or filmed. Okay, and then, and then for the artist, what did you think? And for the artist, um, the thing is, I don't know how to compare it with the other films that it was nominated against. So from its contemporaries, I wouldn't know if it deserved Best Picture because I didn't watch the others. But is it at the, the level? Others, okay, but- do, you think it's at the, do you think it's at the level of a Best Picture film? I'm lukewarm about it, but leaning towards yes. Okay, I'll take that. And that just means Top Gun Maverick could win Best Picture this year. <laughs> All right, uh, last question. Are there any other films you're currently watching uh, that you want to give a shout out to um, or that you're waiting to watch that coming out? You know, Paolo, I, I feel so bad because I have not been watching a lot of films. You know, the last film that I watched was Everything Everywhere All at Once. Hey, that is. I will take. I will take that as a recommendation. I will second that recommendation. Because especially the more times you watch it, the weirder it gets. I will. Say. 
right, take it, but, take it back. Top Gun to win Best Picture. Everything, everywhere, all at once to win Best Picture next year. I think that it should win Best Picture. And then I think, I think it's called The Thirteen. Is a film that I'm uh, looking forward to watching. I think that's going to be on Amazon Prime, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. All right, Prima. Well, you know, it's been a, a nice long conversation. It's great catching up with you. Um, you know, I, I definitely learned a lot, I guess, about, about score and instrumentation for, you know, again, what you would normally call a silent film that I guess we've concluded is not really silent. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me about about the wing about wings and the artist. Um, yeah, thank you so much. And you, know, I, I think in in a couple of years I'll probably get around to musical films, so I'll probably have you back on for one of those. Oh, sure. Why not? <laughs> but thank you, Paulo. I actually learned a lot. Many thanks again to Prim for joining me on this episode to talk about music scores and sound films. While she may not have any social media that she wants to share, I definitely hope to have her back on to talk more about musical films in the future. Um, as far as next month's episode, now, you know, looking at these films, one other commonality you can find between them is that these films are both in black and white. Um, it's not as uncommon for black and white films to win Oscars, right? Um, the first, uh, I believe, 11 Best Picture films uh, were all black and white films, but it's still, at this point, mostly an artifact of a gone-by era of filmmaking, much like these sound films were. Uh, to that end, I'm going to be watching two well-renowned black and white films for next month's episode. Uh, we have 1960's The Apartment, generally considered by, you know, talking to some people like one of the best, potentially the best uh, best picture winner of all time, and also 1950's All About Eve, which is also highly regarded. Uh, these were both winners of the 33rd and 23rd Best Picture Award, respectively. So, if you want to join me next month for those, those month's episodes, you have some time to watch those. I believe they should be available on Amazon Prime uh, for a small rental fee. Uh, in any case, that wraps up this episode of the Best Picture Marathon of the Oscars Death Race podcast. Let me know what you think of Wings and the Artist uh, over on Twitter at Oscars D Race Podcast or via email at Oscars Death Race Podcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show on your podcast service of choice, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. And if you can leave us a review there uh, or even just share it with any of your friends who love movies, any of that's super helpful. Um, link to the show will be my letterbox account under the username Ninja Boy, Boy with an I. Um, also, be sure to check out the Oscar Race and Oscars Death Race subreddit and the Oscars Death Face Discord, as well as the community website. Uh, music in this episode is provided by Kevin MacLeod at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Editing production is by Ninja Boy Media. That's it for this week. This has been Paulo of the Oscars Death Face Podcast. And until next month, I'll be here trying to watch all the movies or die trying. Mm-hmm.